HVAC 360, episode number 48, HVAC Refrigerants. And welcome back, everybody, to another episode of HVAC 360. I'm your host, Matt Nelson. This week, we're going to be talking with uh, a professor over at Purdue University, Dr. Eckhart Grohl. Um, we're going to be talking about HVAC refrigerants. Um, this is always some uh, good information to have in your back pocket. You may not necessarily use it every day, but it's good to have a, a good knowledge base about refrigerants and how you should use them in design, how, she, how you should advise clients, things like that. So uh, we'll go uh, right to the tape with our interview with Dr. Grohl. All right, this week we're talking with uh, Dr. Eckhart Grohl. He is a professor of mechanical engineering at Purdue University. How are you doing today, Professor? I'm doing just fine. Great. Hey, um, now, can you tell me a little bit about uh, your background in, in uh, mechanical engineering and kind of, you know, where you came from? Uh, sure. I got actually educated in uh, Germany. I got a diploma in mechanical engineering from the Ruhr University of Bochum and a PhD from the University of Hanover. Uh, uh, but I spent uh, time towards both degrees in the U.S. I uh, spent a year at Texas A&M. Uh, towards my diploma, and then uh, um, I spent some time at the University of Maryland to do Ph.D. research and stayed in Maryland as a postdoc before I came to Purdue in 1994 as an assistant professor. So I've been at Purdue now 18 years this summer, and I moved up the ranks from assistant to associate professor, and since 2005 I'm a full professor. Excellent. Now, you also are a director of uh, a cooperative education. Is that that is correct. I'm the director of the Office of Professional Practice, and we direct uh, all of Purdue's cooperative education programs. Uh, we have about uh, 600 students in various programs um, through that office. Now, does Purdue offer a uh, architectural engineering uh, program, uh, or is it just strictly mechanical? No, we do offer an architectural engineering, um, uh, we call it a, a area or, or a, 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 a subsection or so. It's, it's housed within the School of Civil Engineering. So uh, it's not, uh, the students still get a degree of a Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering, but they have uh, a specification if you want to. Uh, 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 a topic area of architectural engineering. Interesting, interesting. Um, now, so I guess where, you know, today we're going to be talking about uh, HVAC refrigerants. Where does, you know, how did you get into refrigerants? How I personally got into refrigerant was I finished my diploma uh, in Germany at the end of uh, 1989. And uh, I had a specialization in uh, uh, heat transfer, thermodynamics, and fluid mechanics, more so the thermal sciences, basically. And I was shopping around for a PhD position. And at that point, everybody was talking about uh, ozone depletion and phasing out of the classical refrigerants, if you want to name them that, and finding alternatives and solutions. There was lots of research 
funding available to look at alternate refrigerants. And I uh, found the topic very interesting from what I picked up from the news at that point. And so I, picked, uh, I was offered a position at the University of Hanover to look at an alternate uh, technology, uh, including alternate uh, refrigerants to be used uh, for, for the, the common vapor compression refrigerants. Now, you know, I, I think the one thing that interests me about, uh, you know, refrigerants is, is kind of the, the naming of them. Because the, the naming of the refrigerants, whether it be, you know, R11 or R132 you know, uh, or R410A, you know, those have specific, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're almost like, you know, model numbers. They kind of tell you exactly what, um, you know, those components are made of. Can you kind of... Tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, the chemistry behind the naming standpoint, or, or how, how do you decipher them? Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting question. I, I love to talk about this. I can give you first, we can start out saying what it actually means. Um, if you have a refrigerant, uh, let's say, 134A, um, the first number, the 1, stands for um, how many carbon atoms are in the molecule minus one? So 134A actually has two carbon, carbon atoms in the molecule. You, you subtract one, and so you have a one there at the first number. The second number is a three, and that is the number of the hydrogen atoms in the molecule plus one. So there are two hydrogen atoms in the molecule, and you add one that makes a three, and then the four is uh, the remaining bounds of the molecule are filled up with fluorine atoms. And so uh, you have four fluorine atoms that make up the molecule now. Uh, so uh, that sounds actually complicated. Um, and the reason why it is so complicated is because the person who invented uh, the classical CFC refrigerants was Tom Midgley. And he initially uh, didn't want anybody to know uh, what he was working on. So he invented a, a number scheme that is actually kind of confusing, that is kind of misleading. And, uh, but because then everybody eventually picked up his uh, refrigerants that he invented in the 1930s, uh, we're still sticking with his numbering scheme today, even though it was invented to confuse people or his competitors not to know what he was doing, and we're still doing it today. So it's absolutely fascinating. Now, so I mean, obviously, with with the uh, the, the the three digit numbers, what if we, what if you went down to like the R eleven, the R twenty two? What so the R eleven or R twelve uh, means there's a zero in front that is actually skipped. So uh, the real uh, number scheme would be R zero one one for R eleven and R zero one two for R twelve, which means they only have one carbon atoms, but we're subtracting one, so there would be a zero in front. The zero is typically skipped, but there is actually an official uh, nomenclature that would be a zero up front. Interesting. And uh, the A in 134A, I forgot to mention that, the A means it's an asymmetrical atom. So if you have, for example, the two carbons, four fluoride, and two hydrogen, you can put the two hydrogen on one side of the molecule, uh, and then it's asymmetrical, or you can put one hydrogen on each side of the C atoms, and then it's a symmetrical uh, molecule, and so then you have actually uh, the refrigerant R134, which does exist but doesn't have any commercial um, value. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. 
Now, the, the, I guess the one thing that, that I know, what about like 410A? I mean, having a 4 in there, is there like, because I remember like, you know, an azeotrope or an isotrope. You know? Yeah, so, so we're using this uh, definition of refrigerant numbers like the 0, 1, 2, for example, for R12, and then the R134A, and then we have R245F, uh, uh, FA, for example, to indicate the molecule structure with the F and the A. Um, but beyond that, uh, we're deviating now from this number scheme. You can already imagine with, uh, with R2XX uh, series, you have now uh, four. Uh, uh, you get to uh, uh, to uh, sorry to three carbon uh, atoms, which make the molecule very large. And and so while you could create larger molecules, they're not very commercially viable anymore. You don't have the thermodynamic characteristics to uh, to really uh, uh, do well in a system. Uh, the mole- the transport properties are not so good. So. It was decided by ASHRAE actually to use 400 series, so 4XX, for uh, mixtures, as well as the 500 series for for mixtures of uh, when we start mixing one or two, uh, sorry, two or three uh, refrigerants together to create a new fluid. And the difference between the 400 and the 500 series uh, refrigerants is the 400 have uh, what's called a temperature glide, which meaning during a constant pressure evaporation or condensation process, the temperature does not stay constant. They actually, uh, the temperature has a a certain range, a certain temperature difference from the start of evaporation until the end of evaporation at constant pressure. And we call that a temperature glide. Uh, While the 500 series refrigerants uh, create an azeotrope, which means um, they actually at a certain concentration uh, have just one saturation temperature that goes along with uh, the the uh, the pressure uh, of the system during the evaporation the condensation uh, process and so they they kind of even though they're mixtures of multiple refrigerants they behave like a single component refrigerant and that's the 500 series designation wow yeah cuz i i know that the 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 one thing uh, you know, at least from a, a practical standpoint, is that if you had, you know, R11, R12, um, uh, you know, versus R410A um, in a system where, you know, if there was a leak in an R, R12 system, uh, you could just end up adding more R12 and you'd be fine. Whereas if you had, you know, 410, you know, 410A, you really had to take everything out and put a whole new mixture back in. Because it is that combination that that uh, you know multiple different refrigerants being put together. Yes, that that is correct, and and the reason is in fact exactly this this temperature glide that I mentioned. So if you have one constant pressure in the evaporator or the the condenser, the liquid phase and the vapor phase have slightly different compositions. Um, how different will depend on the refrigerant mixtures and and the difference in this temperature glide that you experience during the condensation or evaporation process. And so now if, if you predominantly leak out the liquid phase, uh, you leak out one refrigerant more than the others. If you predominantly leak out a, a vapor phase, you get the other refrigerant more leaking out. Than, uh, and so you're, you're, uh, with the leak in the heat exchanger, and only in the heat exchanger, though, 
um, you do create a concentration imbalance, and that's why you would need to take the complete charge out and recharge it uh, with new refrigerant to maintain the concentration that, that is accurate. But if the leak is anywhere in the vapor phase or in the subcool liquid phase, right, like in the liquid line or around the compressor, uh, then you don't have to do it because uh, there uh, the mixture is homogeneous again. This, this phenomenon really only occurs in the heat exchanger and would only occur if you have a leak in the heat exchanger. Mm, excellent, excellent. Learn something new every day. <laughs> so now the refrigerants themselves, when you talk about refrigerants and you talk about the different you know, protocols that have, have, have been issued about them, um, they all have kind of different uh, <clears throat> kind of, I guess, characteristics that you know, aside from their names, they're going to have uh, 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 you know different you know global warming potential and ozone depletion. Can you talk about the different characteristics that, that the refrigerants are classified by? Uh, yes, sure. I mean, you can uh, uh, certainly uh, classify ozone depletion potential, which is our, everything is related to R11 as as one of the uh, refrigerants with the highest. Uh, 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 global warming potential, uh, sorry, uh, ozone depletion potential, and uh, um, what um, uh, what it indicates is uh, to what extent does this refrigerant, if released to the atmosphere, and when the molecule breaks down, deplete the ozone layer. Uh, that is a, a, a relatively chemical complex process that happens in the stratosphere at certain ultraviolet radiation hit the molecule, it breaks off the, the chloride, and the chloride reacts with the ozone and, and breaks down um, the ozone layer. So uh, that, um, that is strictly a phenomenon of the chloride being in, in the molecule. And so uh, if, uh, if, the, uh, um, if the molecule has a lot of chloride, then uh, um, typically the ozone... Uh, uh, depletion potential is high, and so a decision was made over the years to phase out all uh, CFC refrigerants, which means the chlorofluorocarbons, uh, which uh, uh, which had a, a very high amount of chloride and, and no hydrogen on the molecule, just fluoride and chloride, um, and uh, uh, that was phased, therefore phased out in '96, and then. And uh, now in 2010, we even phase out the HCFC, which are the hydrochlorofluorocarbons, which have hydrogen in addition to the chloride. They're not, uh, their ozone depletion potential is not as bad, but um, uh, it's still significant enough that, that we had to phase them out. And so um, uh, out of a new equipment that phased out in 2010 and out of production, they will phase out in 2020. Um, so we still can recharge system, but not use them. But that is just one aspect. A different aspect that you mentioned was the global warming potential, which is uh, how much do these refrigerant contribute uh, to uh, towards the, the global warming phenomena, which is basically closing out windows um, for us as the Earth to radiate towards the universe, and so radiation is reflected by these gases in the atmosphere to come back to Earth, therefore heating up our atmosphere. We cannot radiate out to the universe. Uh, they're, they're closing certain wavelength windows. Um, that uh, is everything there is related to uh, CO2 as one of the primary gases that has this effect, um, but the, the big difference is in CO2 we are exhausting 
in millions of tons through, uh, during fossil fuel combustions. Refrigerants are we are, uh, releasing through leakage and other things in systems to the atmosphere, but the uh, global warming potential of refrigerant is much higher in the order of a thousand times of that of uh, CO2 for an equal amount of mass. And so uh, there's still a big concern about this, and we still have to, uh, to worry about it. In this case, though, all of the refrigerants, regardless if they were the CFCs or the HFCs, and now the replacement, that the ones that we currently use, it's a, the HFCs, which don't contain any chloride anymore, just hydrofluorocarbons, um, so they have zero ozone depletion, that's good, but they still have a significantly high global warming potential where uh, we still have to, to think about alternates or, or contain these refrigerants better um, as they contribute to, to global warming. Now, there are uh, out there some, some more, or I should say less common uh, refrigerants out there. Um, that are you know, not in the same uh, category. How, how are those classified? Yeah, so that's a, a, a very, very good question. So uh, uh, the refrigerants that, more, that you're probably referring to are uh, typically called natural refrigerants. Uh, that is just a name that, that a certain aspects of the industry gave them. Uh, they are, uh, the idea is these are refrigerants that are naturally occurring in the biosphere. So substances that we have in the, in the biosphere already as compared to uh, chemically manufactured refrigerants. Um, typically, um, those refrigerants are classified by uh, the letter, um, uh, by the 700 series, and their, um, uh, and their uh, mole- molecular weight, a uh, classical example is, for example, CO2 can be used as a refrigerant, is naturally occurring, and it's 744, so uh, 700 series and then 44 for the mole- molecular weight of uh, CO2. Ammonia is another substance that is naturally occurring, uh, and so uh, ammonia is uh, 718, right, um, for NH3, um, so nitrogen and three uh, hydrogens is, is 18. And then uh, we have, uh, uh, we have uh, uh, some others. The hydrocarbons, which also considered natural refrigerants, so hydrocarbons like propane and, and uh, methane uh, or butane, uh, sometimes they're not necessarily uh, really naturally existing as uh, just a pure substance, but in many cases they are naturally occurring, uh, for example, in what we call natural gas as a mixture of these substances. They do uh, naturally occur. They actually go back to the, to the R designation that I just uh, uh, mentioned to you. Propane is, for example, R290. Uh, so that follows exactly the, the scheme that I just mentioned. It has uh, uh, three uh, carbon atoms and then eight hydrogen atoms to fill the three carbon atoms. And so that's the nine and then zero of fluoride or chloride. Or so that's how you get up with R290. Excellent. Um, so I guess when when we're you know and I uh, obviously I would I would think that since they have more of a you know traditional naming system that you know these are since they were available that's you know typically what people might have you know started you know uh, trying to use the refrigerants uh, you know trying to use them 
back when they were first started to be used. When when did use the use of refrigerants come into uh, uh, come into play? Um, so, uh, and really, with the Industrial Revolution in the mid 1800s, um, uh, and this is when when people started building the first. Uh, I mean, we started out building steam engines, but then very quickly uh, people realized you can reverse the cycle and do. A refrigeration cycle, uh, which, uh, which is really a, a vapor compression refrigeration cycle, is just a reversal of a of a Rankine power cycle, which is the classical steam engine cycle. Um, and so, uh, um, so mid uh, mid 1800s, uh, the the first patents go down to 1834, and then 1850 uh, for for the first compressors. Uh, and the the refrigerants that were used at that point were, uh, or the refrigerants were substances that were uh, available at that time. And so available was ammonia. Ammonia was one of the very early refrigerants used. Available were also a lot of ethers, uh, ethers that were used in the printing industry at that point as cleaning substances and stuff. And they, um, they actually, they can be used uh, as refrigerants too. Not, and all of them had, of course, some, some major concerns, um, either like toxicity or, or acidity. Uh, they, they uh, were corrosive, uh, they were aggressive. So, so it's challenging substances, but those were the, the early substances that were used in the 1800s. And, and um, then, uh, so at the end of the 1800s, around 1900s, we started using uh, CO2 quite heavily. Uh, that was a refrigerant of choice. It's a high-pressure refrigerant, also not without challenges, but, uh, but it uh, doesn't have the toxicity, doesn't have the aggressivity um, or corrosivity uh, that some of the other substances had. Um, so uh, 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 very interesting, but nothing was really satisfying to the industry until Tom Midgley in the 1930s created the, the CFCs, the R11, R12, and they were immediately considered miracle substances. They were like they had all of the stuff that people wanted as a refrigerant. They were uh, like safe in handling. Uh, they were easy to use, had low pressures. Uh, uh, they were ideal to mix with mineral oils for the lubrication of the machinery of the compressors and stuff. So, so they took over like a flash in the entire industry very quickly. But that didn't happen until uh, the, the mid-1930s. Up until then, we used all these uh, uh, different, some, sometimes uh, today called more exotic substances. Now, the, the, I guess the, the so it, it came into the industry, the R11, R12, and, you know, they're really, you know, they're great. Um, did they? I mean, as far as comparing them to uh, the, the the performance of the refrigerants that we have today, were they you know so much better? I mean, are we getting rid of efficiency for the sake of uh, you know the environment? Is that is that yeah. the trade off that we're having? So uh, uh, before we go into that discussion, let let me tell you, I, I find this phenomena. Um, really uh, absolutely fascinating because there was a substance invented in 1930, right? And, and it was literally hailed as a miracle substance. If you go into the literature um, at that point, you know, everybody loved this. And, and 40 years later, I mean, literally, in the mid-1970s, we discovered these substances that were considered absolutely 
like like fascinating the best thing that we could do actually uh, do uh, tremendous havoc to our environment by depleting the ozone layer which which is like a, a, a very big uh, issues for us as as you uh, as living beings so uh, absolutely mind-boggling right that something that was so convincing and so great could have such a detrimental impact so many years later until we discovered it uh, so now we replace these ozone depleting with HFCs. Uh, you asked about efficiencies. The efficiency is still as good or maybe even better than with the CFC refrigerants uh, because the technology still advances. We, you know, if the fluid may be a little bit less efficient, we are building much better compressors, much better heat exchangers today. We, we're doing much better on the process. So overall, efficiency of our equipment with the switch over from, from the CFCs and HCFCs to the HFCs that we currently use is, uh, is still uh, just fine. We, we still actually improve the efficiency of equipment. So, so we're not, not lagging behind or we're not, not making any mistake towards the environment. The bigger challenge is, is the current challenge. We still realize that these replacement refrigerants have a significant global warming potential. We, we would like to get rid of that as well. And so if we get rid of the HFCs, what is next and, and where we go from here? And so that's, that's where I think more the question that you just asked comes into place because if we now go back to the naturally occurring substances uh, and put them into systems, then people are concerned that we cannot meet the efficiency criteria anymore. And so while we may be good for the environment of the direct refrigerant not being released to the atmosphere anymore, we may be indirectly bad because we're consuming more energy to run our equipment. That would not be acceptable, I think, to anybody. So, so even with this next phase of switchover or whatever we decide to do, we still need to provide equipment, overall systems that are more efficient than what we're currently doing. We cannot lose the efficiency again. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you've kind of mentioned uh, the, the phase-outs. Can you kind of recap exactly, you know, if somebody didn't know anything about refrigerants or what's been going on or why they did away with R11, R12, what, you know, what, what have been the, the major pieces uh, you know, globally speaking, because these are, are global kind of, um, you know, you know, protocols that are going mm-hmm. on. Yeah, we have uh, we have uh, two significant protocols. The first protocol was the Montreal Protocol that started in uh, 1976 um, that that regulated uh, the ozone depletion substances. Uh, they were subsequently amended uh, a couple times um, to the point where any, uh, uh, any uh, CFC, as I mentioned, so the, um, uh, these are the chlorofluorocarbons, the refrigerants that have high ozone depletion potential, had to be phased out in 1996. Uh, they were completely gone from the market at that point in 1996. And, um, and they were, uh, in most applications, replaced directly with, with uh, HFCs. These are the hydrofluorocarbons. They don't contain any chloride anymore and therefore have zero ozone depletion potential. But in some applications, 
they were also replaced intermittently with HCFCs. So these are the hydrochlorofluorocarbons. They still contain a little bit of chlorine, have a small ozone depletion potential, uh, and, and uh, governments gave us a little bit more time to phase them out. So in new equipment, they're phased out in 2010, so you can't get any new equipment anymore on the U.S. market that contains any chloride refrigerants. Right? That's completely gone since 2010, and, and any new equipment now will, all, will have just HFC refrigerants, so, so no more chloride uh, and, and zero ozone depletion potential. Um, and uh, in, uh, but we can still use these, these intermittent refrigerants, the HCFCs, until uh, in, in existing equipment to recharge existing equipment, and we can do that until 2020. So we still have a little bit of a grace period there before that refrigerant is completely gone, or even in existing equipment. Does, does that answer your question? Yeah, it, it, it does. And, and how do you now? You mentioned the Montreal Protocol, which is probably the, the, the biggest and well known. Um, what about the Kyoto Protocol? So the Kyoto Protocol now addresses the, uh, the global warming, right? And that is the, uh, uh, that is the second aspect. And that uh, has also, also been started to being uh, amended. And uh, so the uh, idea here is that even these HFCs that we're currently then using as replacement and that we're currently selling a new equipment and um, or, or converting existing equipment over to, uh, to these, re- that uh, they have a high global warming potential. And as they release to the atmosphere, they contribute significantly to global warming. And so we need uh, to, uh, to either get rid of them, that will be one approach, or at least do a better job containing them. But, but containing is, is easier said than, than done. I give you the, the classical example that I give my students in class is automotive engineering, right? Uh, we have in the U.S. about 200 million cars on the road. Um, typically, they all have air conditioning. And the typical charge in an automotive air conditioner is two pounds, of R134A. So now you have uh, 200 million cars times two pounds, so you have 400 million pounds of 134A on the road in the U.S. at this point. Um, Studies have shown that automotive uh, air conditioning is, is one of the highest leaking system. And the reason is you have an open drive compressor. That means the shaft of the compressor comes out of the shell and it's driven by a pulley via the engine. In addition, the whole system is, is connected to the engine, which is exposed to high vibrations. So you have flexible hoses to, to li- uh, limit the impact of the vibration on the system, uh, uh, on the firm system components. And so you have a lot of connections. You have flexible hosing. You have an open uh, drive compressor shaft seal. All of this means, um, irregardless of what we're doing, we, get not, we cannot get that system to 0% leakage. It's just physically, technology, not possible. So an automotive air conditioning system will always leak. We can minimize the leak, but, but studies have shown that actually an, a car loses about half of its charge over two years. So now let's go back. I said we had 400 million pounds of 134A in cars. Half of that, 
right, 200 million pounds over two years. That means we are leaking 100 million pounds of R134A every year into our atmosphere, and this is the U.S. alone. So, so that is tremendous. Right? That is an application where we absolutely have to use a different refrigerant. Right? That 134A has a high global warming potential. The impact is huge. We've got to get, get rid of it and use a different refrigerant. Wow. That's, that's, uh, that is significant. Now, I, I guess when we talk about uh, the refrigerants being used today, obviously there are some, you know, some winners in, uh, in being developed. What are, what are some of the, and, and I know that, you know, if you, if you look at, like, compressors uh, for, uh, um, uh, for, like, refrigerators, and it, it seems like different markets have different, you have standardized around different uh, types of refrigerants. Um, do you have any feeling for that? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, refrigerants, um, by its nature, have a certain thermodynamic characteristics and performance. Uh, and so some refrigerants are good for certain applications, while other refrigerants are good for other applications, right? So uh, the automotive air conditioning used to uh, uh, used R12 and then was phased over to 134A, and we we need a refrigerant that has somewhat similar uh, performance when used in that type of system. And, and the, 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 the main characteristics here is, like, at what temperature do we evaporate the refrigerant and get the cooling effect into the passenger compartment versus um, to what, at what temperature are we rejecting the heat in the front of the engine compartment. Um, if you go into a, a residential air conditioner, that will see a very different, um, maybe not super different, but, but somewhat different uh, uh, operating temperatures. And if you go into... Uh, a, uh, a supermarket system, which needs to provide freezing of, of frozen pizza, frozen veggies, and ice cream in, in their display cases, that yet uses a completely different uh, operating temperature for their system. So for, for each of these systems, we have traditionally uh, specific refrigerants that give us optimum performance. Um, so uh, 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 classically, we have been uh, we're talking about maybe five different refrigerants that could cover most of the market, right? So we had uh, uh, in the past uh, uh, when we uh, uh, when we started out, uh, we had about uh, R12, which used household uh, refrigerator air conditioning. We had R22 which was used for any type of residential air conditioning, including uh, uh, commercial air conditioning um, and, and medium-temperature commercial, uh, commercial refrigeration. And then we had R502, uh, which uh, was the commercial uh, uh, refrigeration at low temperature, the supermarket at low temperature that I mentioned. And we had R11 for the large air conditioning for the large, uh, like centrifugal chillers that are used for large office structures or airports or hospitals uh, or so. And then we also always used ammonia to some extent for industrial uh, refrigeration like breweries or refrigerated warehouses where you're not in contact with, uh, with just uh, uh, the general population where only mechanics are in, pro are in contact with the system. So all of these are gone, like R12 was replaced with 134A, 22 was replaced with 410A, 502 was replaced with, uh, with two refrigerants, uh, 507 or 404A, uh, they both have market share, 
and R11 was replaced with R245FA. So, so they are all, uh, uh, but all of these are now HFC refrigerants, and, and all of these um, are still under scrutiny, as, as we discussed. Now, uh, you, you know, what do you, what do you tell, I mean, obviously, when, you, when you're dealing with building owners that have an existing equipment, you know, and they have some antiquated equipment that, that may be, you know, 30, 40 years old, uh, you know what? What are your what are your options? Uh, you know, as far as um, you know, what to do with some of the uh, some of the equipment. So if it's uh, if it's thirty years old and it's still operational, uh, get rid of it right away. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, um, actually, most systems, really, the longest lasting systems are usually certified for twenty years. So like your your residential air conditioner or your residential uh, refrigerator freezer. They usually maintain performance and are good up to 20 years. Once you hit 20 years, I would automatically replace them anyhow. But more critical is like what is with the equipment that is maybe 10 years old. It still uses the old refrigerant. It still performs reasonably well, uh, but uh, we're not using this refrigerant now anymore. And and so in in those cases, you uh, um, you really have to make a decision uh, uh, what. Uh, uh, you know how environmental conscious uh, you want to be. Um, it's, uh, if you if you're in need of recharging, if you start having a leak of the system uh, and you, you know it, and and you need to annually like put more refrigerant in to maintain performance, I would always uh, recommend to replace it because the environmental concern is is too great. If the system is still leak tight. You don't have to recharge. You're just operating it. You can wait until you get close to the 20 years and then replace with new equipment. So that, those were, would be my recommendations. All right. So now, uh, I guess, what, what, sort of, uh, what, what sort of time frames uh, for some of the existing um, you know, refrigerants should we be up on? You- so the, the real question will be, is like how long can we use uh, the current HFC refrigerants, uh, 134A and R410A, for example, as some of the uh, very prominent two refrigerants in our existing uh, and, and new equipment? And, and that's a question that, that you and I can gamble on, but, but we will not know for sure. And, and the other thing that comes into place now is, is uh, politics and, uh, and different regions of the world. Right, so so Europe, for example, have made a commitment to uh, naturally occurring substances as refrigerants, and so in Switzerland, for example, already 50% of their heat pumps, residential heat pumps, are running on propane, um, which is an excellent refrigerant. You don't have any problems with efficiency. You actually may even have an efficiency gain. Um, um, so, but you have the high risk. Of flammability or even explosion if if the propane leaks and and it gets close to a flammable source. Uh, so uh, the U.S. with the current li- uh, liability laws has not adapted this technology and and there's a question if they ever will or, or if they will when they will. Uh, very uh, very tricky uh, uh, discussion, right? And and the, but. It's not necessarily a technology problem. I, I firmly believe that we can build hydrocarbon systems that are safe and reliable, but it is 
a, uh, a problem of the laws of the land, and that means our liability laws are such that if an accident does happen, we have no upper restriction of how ma for how much money people can sue. And so, uh, uh, you know, if there's a loss of life or something, companies that build this equipment could be sued for much larger amounts of money than in Europe. Europe has an upper limit on, on, on law cases like this, and, and so uh, companies can build this into the overall profit margin much easier than in the U.S. Uh, so it's, it's really, you get into all kinds of, of different uh, discussions um, now. Right, uh, that are, are difficult to predict. So, uh, uh, but Europe, uh, like I said, uh, uh, use propane for residential uh, heat pumping. Uh, they use CO2 quite heavily for supermarket refrigeration systems. Uh, we are still uh, not there yet, and, and not really that interested in that yet. Um, there, there's, there's other things that that pull into this direction. We have uh, most refrigerants are manufactured in the U.S. The biggest uh, refrigerant manufacturers are DuPont and uh, Honeywell, who bought Allied Signal, and Allied uh, Signal traditionally was, was uh, uh, the, the next biggest next to DuPont. This is a huge market. I mean, as I mentioned, right, um, do, uh, these companies have to produce 100 million pounds of uh, R134A just to replace the automotive sector. Right? Uh, that means they're, they're making uh, a lot of money of this. They, you, you sell a pound of 134A for 12 bucks, uh, $10 maybe on the market. Right? So take that times 100 million. There's a lot of money uh, to be made. They don't want to lose this market either. Mm -hmm. right? so, uh, so there are forces at, at place that, uh, that, that impact um, uh, uh, how this all shapes up and what refrigerants we may use in the future that is, makes it very difficult to predict. Yeah, and I, I can only imagine, especially if you just focus on you know, uh, refrigerants for cars, if you would take, a, say, a developing market like China, that uh, yeah. there's so many more cars being put on the, the road there that have the exact same issue because they're no better than what, you know, what everybody else is driving around. Sure. So that 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 makes uh that's exactly right, right? And I mean, and you could can argue the 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 point of the companies too, right? I mean, uh you argue well, if we lose this income right, as a chemical or refrigerant producing company, right? We're losing jobs, we're losing economy. Right, that has a significant impact on uh, on our economy, and and that uh, that's a decision that has to to come into place too. But on the other hand, if we're convinced uh, we want to maintain the earth as a as a place to to continue to live, uh, you know, comfortably, uh, we may we uh, we may uh, take the hit in the economy, right, uh, right. to the better of the environment. I don't know. A very very difficult discussion, but that is exactly the discussion that they do at the Kyoto Protocol and and the uh, other uh, the amendment conferences um, that are being discussed. Right, that. Um, yeah, what's a reasonable way forward? Now, I, you, as you kind of describe a lot of the uh, um, you know different solutions that other uh, European countries are coming up with, um, it, it seems to be that they're again they're going back to the more the more natural uh, yes. type of refrigerants. They're not you know we're not going back to well let's let's make a let's make a, a different molecule. Let's come up with a better refrigerant. Um, is is there any of that you know coming into play? 
Yes, that's exactly coming into play. We haven't talked about that yet, but uh, DuPont and, and Honeywell have created yet another molecule. It is, uh, it is a brand new uh, substance. They call it uh, an HFO. Um, it's, uh, uh, let me see, uh, so uh, it's, the O stands for olefins, I think, um, the hydrofluorolefins. It uh, now has a designation of, uh, uh, of a thousand series. Uh, and uh, uh, so they don't want to lose the market. They see the pressure on the HFC refrigerants, and so they're creating uh, yet a new substance. Uh, the question with any of this is, uh, um, can we say today what these HFOs will do in 40 years from now? That, that is, as a, as a human, that is my, my only concern with, with going and chemically, uh, chemically manufacturing new refrigerants, right? Because we can go back to the 1930s. At that point, somebody invented new refrigerants. They were hailed as great. Uh, and 40 years later, we found out they do something else. Uh, do we create a new situation like this? So, so that's why, why certain entities uh, and uh, like Greenpeace, like others, say, let's go back to the 1800s. We had some original substances. These were substances that were naturally occurring and that we knew of, and they uh, they were used. Uh, we, we're going to use them again. We know what they do. They're very well investigated. We know the impact on the environment. Uh, we just need to make the equipment uh, efficient enough to be competitive, but let's use those. Uh, while others say, well, but if we can produce new uh, chemically manufactured refrigerants that have the same characteristics of the current ones that we can just drop in, substitute in, uh, it's so much easier for the industry to adapt than, than just to switch over to completely different technology. And that is uh, yet another discussion that feeds into the overall discussion that is correct. Well, I mean, and, and if, you, if you take a look at the, the refrigerants, uh, the natural occurring refrigerants, you know, say, for example, uh, the, the, the carbon dioxide, um, that still, that has, you know, the zero ozone depletion because it's an chloride, right? Yes. Um, but it, it, it does have a, a global warming potential, doesn't it? Uh, that's a very good question. Actually, uh, CO2 as a refrigerant uh, does not have a, a global warming potential. Not many uh, uh, people understand that right away. But the, the point is we are not producing any CO2 as a refrigerant. Actually, uh, the CO2 that we would use in refrigeration system is already uh, existing CO2. We're not creating new ones. Uh, you could even say we could just uh, use some of the CO2 that we uh, uh, create uh, for during fossil fuel combustion or other places and just store it for a while in a refrigeration system. But we would not create new uh, refrigerants. So, so that's why that uh, uh, global warming potential in that case is, as a refrigerant is negligible. Okay. So, and, and I guess what I was, what I was kind of you know, trying to drive at, especially, uh, you know, maybe, with, I don't know, if, if ammonia or methane, but do, I mean, do, are all the, you know, uh, you know, naturally occurring elements so, you know, squeaky clean that, you know, you couldn't produce a, a chemical refrigerant that would be just as good or not, you know, better as far as these two benchmarks go? That, that's a good question, and I, I'm, I'm not certain. I I I uh um the I wouldn't 
I'm not that much of a chemical expert that, uh, I mean, I know how to use them and I know the basics, but I'm not necessarily a person that creates fluids uh, out of a molecule. I don't know um, uh, yeah, if that would be feasible or not. Um, but I can, I can say that hydrocarbons have, have uh, a negligible global warming, so does ammonia, right? Um, so that's... Uh, uh, that, they all check out. They all have zero ozone depletion and, and pretty much negligible global warming potential. So, but they have other issues, right? I mean, hydrocarbons are flammable or explosive. Ammonia is toxic, uh, right? Uh, CO2, very high pressure. So they have technology challenges that need to be addressed on a system level. Mm. Now, could we create a new chemical substances that have some of those uh, properties but not these detrimental uh, uh, otherwise uh, detrimental characteristics, uh, like I said, I'm not certain. Uh, certainly maybe if you, uh, if you believe uh, some of the press from, uh, from DuPont and Honeywell, some of these new HFOs uh, uh, will, will be such substances, right? They have very, very low global warming potential, zero ozone depletion potential, and uh, uh, should be uh, safe to use and no toxicity and, and so on. So they are what they call mildly flammable. So they, they couldn't get away to make it completely <laughs> non-flammable, but to ignite them is very, very difficult. But if you have the right mixture and the right source, ignition source, you can, uh, you can burn them, but, but with very low energy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now, I guess, kind of just bringing it back around, you know, now that we've kind of talked about all these these CFCs or these uh, refrigerants, rather, um, as a designer, as an engineer designing new systems, uh, you know, are, are we just going to, you know, try to pick the, uh, the the most current refrigerant and just, you know, hope that it's okay? Or, I mean, obviously, some of these. You know, in betweens uh, uh, are are going to run out in like uh, 2020, as you said. So uh, um, I'm uh, as a designer. That's one aspect. As a researcher, let me talk. Let's talk first. I'm a researcher and I investigate new technology. So right now, I'm I'm doing uh, um, quite a bit of work on making uh, some of the systems that use these naturally occurring substances as efficient as current systems and as safe as current systems. So we're looking at how can we make uh, use the hydrocarbon in a residential system and, and be, be very safe with this, right? Have no risk of flammability or explosion or so. Um, so that, that's a significant part of my research. But uh, there is still a significant part of my research that still focuses on using the currently used HFC refrigerants like R410A and making those systems more efficient as well and, and uh, doing a better job with these refrigerants too, uh, containing them better. Um, so that, that uh, we're still running in, in, in both directions, right? We still have to, to uh, consider what we're currently doing, but we also need to consider looking into the future what, what's going to happen afterwards. Okay. Right. Yeah. And I, I think as a designer in a company, uh, if you work like in this industry, you would do, uh, you would do similar things. You would look at, uh, okay, we, we have current systems out there. We want to improve them. We want, we want to make them better. We want to be, uh, uh, be competitive. But, but we also 
uh, need to look into the future. What happens in five years or ten years from now? Uh, what what are the substances that we are going to use then, and what are the systems uh, look like that we build then? And and, and have uh, uh, some of your engineers uh, focus on on those aspects as well. Okay. So I guess you know, regardless, you know, stuff we you know, if we if we have that thought process to you know to be diligent and and looking at what's available, what's the most current. You know what are some of the alternatives, and and making choices based on that. You know, by the end of the life of the equipment, you're going to end up with a a different set of uh, rules and refrigerants, essentially, uh, at that point in time, anyway. Yeah. No, and I agree with that. Actually, um, my vision really is that we see much more individualized systems for individual applications than we have seen in the past. There is not like one refrigerant that fits all. And it's really application by application. Like, for example, your domestic refrigerator freezer, right? These, these systems are really considered leak-free for life. They're completely manufactured in a, uh, uh, in a factory. Um, they're, they're, uh, they're, uh, the system is, is all soldered together. There are no flexible connections. There are no thread connections. It's all soldered together. Uh, you can manufacture a refrigerator that is leak-free for, for 20 years. And if you have a great recycle program where the refrigerator comes back to the manufacturing site, um, you really don't have to worry what refrigerants you're going to put in, right? So, so there to use maybe to continue to use an HFC is, is perfectly fine, right? If we, as long as we recycle the refrigerator appropriately at the end of their life, we will never have a problem. The same is not true, as I mentioned, for the automotive uh, uh, application. So, so we're really looking at uh, each application individually and, and, and seeing what is the best solution for that application. Excellent. Fantastic. So uh, now, uh, I guess, uh, if somebody wanted to learn more about refrigerants, um, what, what are some of the best ways to go about doing that? Um, so I uh, currently serve on the board of directors of the American Society for Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers. This is ASHRAE. Uh, ASHRAE has a, a winter conference that happens typically uh, in the last week of January and an annual conference, which happens uh, to be at the last uh, week of, of uh, June. Uh, we just had our annual conference in San Antonio, Texas at the end of June uh, a couple of weeks ago. And um, so uh, going uh, to ASHRAE website uh, and, uh, and looking what's available through ASHRAE is, is, uh, is an uh, ideal step to get more information. We have handbooks. We have position documents. Uh, we have uh, standards of how to test and rate equipment. Uh, we have all kinds. Uh, and then, of course, we have technical publications that come out of these conferences. So we have all kinds of information available. We have short courses that we offer as part of our conferences um, to to learn about the, the topic, the subject, um, and it's uh, the website is just ashray.org, and, and you find uh, a lot of useful information there. Excellent. Any Any last thoughts that you have? Uh, no, I, uh, I enjoyed the discussion. I'm, I'm glad uh, I was able to talk a little bit about refrigerants. I obviously I can get very excited about the topic. I I love the topic. Uh, it's a it's a very research active uh, topic. Uh, although not too many universities work in this area, but the universities that are committed to it are working uh, very hard to find uh, the solutions for the future. 
Excellent. Well, I appreciate, uh, Dr. Grohl, you taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, sit down and talk with us. Uh, you're very welcome. All right, and we're back. Uh, special thanks to uh, Dr. Grohl for uh, taking his time uh, to talk with us about refrigerants. It's obviously something you know he, he, he loves to talk about, and I, th- I think that that shows through. You know, I mean, you know, real, realistically, you know, when you're comparing refrigerants and you're talking about uh, you know the the pluses and minuses of, of using some things that are, tend to be a little bit more flammable, like the, like the methane or the propane, uh, like he was referring to. You know, and I just I, I can't help but think about my own house. You know, would I object to a propane uh, uh, compressor, uh, propane refrigerant in my uh, air conditioning unit? And you know, I got to tell you, it, uh, it really is that to me, it's not a, a not a big issue. I mean, you think about it. My air conditioning unit sits right next to my hot water tank. Now that could leak natural gas. You know. Just the same, you know, I mean, and especially, you know, the natural natural gas line runs throughout the house. You know, how, how many points of, uh, does does that leak? So when you compare the, the dangers and, and the uh, the issues about leaks, um, you know, in, in con, you know, conjunction with with other things, um, you know, that that has to be put into play. I mean, you know, on the other hand, if you had a heat pump that was in a, uh, you know, in a classroom, would I feel safe about that? Hmm. You know, there, there, it maybe, maybe gets a little bit different. But again, you have to, you know, like, like uh, the professor said, you really have to take the application by application basis. And I think you're going to see a little bit more diversity. Um, you know, whether it be, you know, different. You know, if you have a, a mechanical system that's, uh, you know, kind of sequestered between the mechanical room and outside, uh, you know, uh, area. You know, maybe that can you know accept a, a wide range of uh, refrigerant options, whereas maybe uh, more um, you know centrally based uh, you know heat pumps and things like that have a um, you know a different uh, agenda. So, but there again, you know, carbon dioxide, you know, w- why not in some certain certain instances? Anyway, great discussion. I hope you uh, learned something from it. Gave you a little bit of perspective on refrigerants. I know that you know if you've never listened to a discussion on refrigerants, I think this is probably as as, as good, if not better, than any of the others that I've uh, that I've listened to. So I appreciate Dr. Grohl, uh, you know, taking the time to explain it and uh, very succinctly. So. All right. If you uh, if you have any comments, if you liked the discussion, if you didn't like the discussion, you can always email me at matt at buildingx.co, or you can follow me on Twitter at buildingx, or uh, connect with me uh, on LinkedIn. Um, either that or sign up for the newsletter at buildingx.co uh, right there and uh, get the uh, the updates, some of the inside scoop, some, uh, some things that uh, uh, the happenings around the HVAC 360 world. Um, so until next time, I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, Hey, feel free to share it with somebody that, you know, you take care and remember always know what you build and share what you know.